2: Coming up on this week's show, how Janet Jackson could destroy your retro computer. Bad news for Resident Evil fans. And we chat to the father of desktop
3: video, Tim Jenison.
2: And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now you may have seen that the Commodore 64 celebrated its 40th anniversary recently. So what better way to celebrate that than with Commodore 64 a visual compendium taking you on a journey through the C64's varied and colourful gaming library starting in 1982 and then travelling forward through the decades. There's going to be new copies of that available from next month and you can pre-order right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com and with our friends at pcbway now they offer a fully featured custom pcb prototype service with low cost fast turnaround quality boards and they offer services like 3d printing and injection molding and you know they're big supporters of the retro community so you can get an instant quote for your project right now at (laughs) pcbway.com Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 342, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, me Ravi Abbott, and me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our first show of September. can't believe how quickly this year is flying by. Not long until those darker evenings, the weather gets a bit colder and we spend a lot more time indoors playing classic video games, you know, every cloud. And of course, this podcast celebrates everything to do with classic gaming and technology, bringing you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week. And we bring you a special guest on each week's show. Now, even though we describe ourselves as a retro gaming podcast, we do like to think that we talk about a bit more than just gaming. Yeah, we love
3: to talk about retro tech and oh my god, this week, you know, you guys you you video edit these days with ease on your phone, you can do it on YouTube and uh, you know, you can just do it on your desktop. But without this guy, this week Tim Jennison, you wouldn't have been able to do that and um, he has a great connection with the Amiga computer and it kind of he 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 was the father of desktop video and the the hardware that he invented helped define the machine as not just a gaming machine as a as a serious machine
2: well i've got in my hand here and i fished this out before we started recording um an issue of amiga format magazine i remember vividly picking this up because um you know i mentioned on the show before that when i was at school when i was at primary school i was uh, the computer monitor at school so i used to well, you know in Such the morning a cool dude <laughs> Get kid early and take all the BBC micros out the safe in the Acorn Archimedes and set them up. And then when I went to secondary school, I was in the uh, the AV club, oh, yeah. the after-school video club. So, you know, yeah, very, very popular guys. You can imagine, Joe, want mm. would be me. Um, but we also used to go to um, film and video festivals. Yeah. And I remember we went with, um, one of our teachers took us to Bradford to the... Um, Moving Image. Videos, or, that. That's yeah. the one, yeah. We saw the first IMAX screen there. And we entered one of our films that we made at school into this competition but I remember buying this issue of Amiga format in 1993 to read on the train from WH Smith and the teacher went with us obviously was really into video and I was showing him this um because the cover was the video toaster Mm. and we're flicking through it and he'd never heard of anything like this before and he said what you can do that kind of thing on a home computer and I remember reading about this thing and the video toaster which you know Ravi will give us the explanation of exactly what it is, because it sounds a bit weird. But it was responsible for a lot of early CGI as well. So not only did um, television programs like MTV use it for those, you know, those wacky wipes where you'd see the corner of the screen peel away, or it'd curl away and fly off off the screen, that kind of thing. But then later on, programs like Babylon 5, and they used it for um, affordable CGI. So if you remember Babylon 5... Those What looked really impressive at the time, those out-of-space scenes, you know, we'd see the spaceships flying around and everything, all of that was made using a video toaster device on an Amiga computer. Now, I know that our podcast doesn't necessarily just appeal to computer fans. We've got a lot of people just like, you know, Sega or Nintendo, for example. Like Joe, he, he could tell you how many levels are in probably every Sonic game. He could tell you how many buttons are on a Mega Drive controller. You probably couldn't tell the uh, the back end of an Amstrad from the back end of a horse, though. No. You're not a computer guy, Jen, no, if, no, if no. we're honest. <laughs> so, I mean, for our audience, uh, you know, hardcore console fans, explain what the video toaster is, Ravi. Okay, so
3: if you wanted to edit a video back in the days, you would either have to send it off to a company to do it, or you'd have to buy thousands and thousands of pounds worth of specialist hardware. <laughs> so you'd basically... Have to have these huge devices, and and to edit that in broadcast quality as well, which you know meant you could go straight onto the television. Was a a very hard trick. So um, what 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 they invented at this a uh, company called New Tech mm. was was a, a card that went into your Amiga, and it meant you could edit on your Amiga video, but you could also do those wipes, which are the transitions between yeah. stuff. So you know where it changes you could also add cgi into there and this was the first time that it could get to the consumer and you know people got their hands on it and a lot of people created their own film reels with it mm. people did job interviews with it where they oh, would wow. you know show their work and stuff and, yeah, yeah. It, and before people didn't have Screen, access swipe, to
1: technology.
0: <laughs> like a powerpoint yeah
3: yeah yeah exactly and the thing about the video toaster was it was cool like if you saw mm. wayne's world garth was wearing a video toaster top you know it got this reputation as being really cool so people working within new tech were you know will wheaton who was a wesley crusher off star Trek at the time um they also had penn and teller promoting it tony hawks used the skateboarder used to Mm. do his skateboarding videos in there so as he was doing you know uh a, a jump on the vert ramp, he'd have like a cool transition of escape skateboarder yeah. spinning around. And it had that real kind of cool 90s look, but um, it was really groundbreaking. And it was done specifically using hardware tricks in the Amiga because the Amiga itself couldn't play back video. Um, you had to have them playing on external kind of video players and then edit it that way, like as you went along. But it was a really amazing piece of hardware and uh, groundbreaking, and it just had a weird name as well, which made it really cool as well. The Video <laughs> Toaster, which
2: which we do ask about actually, because I've wondered that for like thirty years where that name com- came from. So we find out uh, with Tim when he talks to us. But you're right. I mean, before that, I remember hearing about you know the- there were machines like the Quantel Paintbox that you know the BBC used to use and everything. But these were and you know Silicon Graphics machines. But you're talking machines that could range from like fifty thousand dollars to like a quarter of a million these things were very expensive. But when the Video Toaster came out, you could buy an Amiga 4000 for like, you know, £1,500, get this card for like a 1000 And for a studio to be able to afford that kind of technology for like, you know, two or three grand, it was really game-changing. So it's something I've always been interested in, something that was much more prevalent in America because we never got an official kind of PAL version of the Video Toaster, even though there have been, you know, some kind of hacks for it over the years. You know,
3: um, when I went over to America, I was in Atlanta, and Atlanta hosted the Olympics, and there was a lot of Amiga guys out there that had actually used video toasters on the Olympics footage. So um, they were broadcasting out to TV, doing all the transitions with this kind of cheap hardware uh, during the Olympics, which is pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, so it's um, a really interesting chat. And if, like me, I mean, you kind of read about the video toaster back in the day and always kind of wondered you know, exactly what it was and how it worked and what the story was behind it, you're going to really enjoy this week's chat with uh, Tim Jennison, who actually, (laughs) Penn & Teller made a movie all about him, didn't they? A couple of years ago, which is um, Tim's Vermeer, which is quite interesting. If uh, if you want to find out more about what a legend he was, and he's been inducted into Halls of Fame, you know, being called the father of desktop video, which is really what he is. So New Tech founder Tim Jennison is going to be our special guest, and he'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, before that, of course, we'd like to update you on the big stories from the world of retro from over the last week. And while we're talking about video and films and TV, this is some news that I've seen everywhere. I mean, it doesn't feel five minutes ago that we were talking about a Resident Evil TV series coming to Netflix. And uh, it turns out after one season, it's been canned.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I'm trying to figure out if I've said much about this across our socials and on the show and stuff like that. but um. Yeah, I put, you mentioned
2: it when it first started. You said you watched the first episode and you didn't want to give any spoilers. I think, so. but you also, yeah. you
3: also said you weren't a fan. That's what yeah, I remember. Yeah, that. I, I want to say it got better.
0: <laughs> it it got better in many ways, but it got worse in many other ways as well. But yeah, it came out about a month ago now, and Netflix have canned it. They've announced they won't be going ahead with it. I say unfortunately. I guess unfortunate for the people who worked on the show, if you will. You know, I always kind of feel bad for those kind of things. But unfortunately, um, yeah, it does have a um audience score of twenty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes and it's coming in around about three out of ten on IMDB, and it hasn't been particularly popular with the Resident Evil fan base. As I've mentioned before, I've been I'm in a lot of the forums and groups and stuff. If you want to take it for what it is as just like a zombie show and kind of take the Resident Evil element out of it, then it could have been all right. But it just it's so far removed. From Resident Evil. It's insane. They really try to kind of link it back with Resident Evil. And a few friends of mine who are kind of casual Resident Evil players, you know, have played some of the games. I like all they link it in with the story, but like with the Resident Evil story. And it kind of, as it goes on, the show kind of reveals that it's a side along story set in the world of Resident Evil, if that makes sense. And I don't want to spoil it, but one or two of the characters who you think are main characters from the from The Resident Evil franchise turn out they're not quite who they seem to be and Mm. it you know it just seems they're kind of like they were just trying to use the name but there's just so much of it that just they got wrong so like straight away that kind of got my back up I would have watched the second season but it was a real chore to get through I've I've, I've got a
3: question Joe like you know you're the you're our resident Resident Evil fan (laughs) (laughs) um is is it one of the video games that's probably had the most adaptions um that go onto film or or TV or oh, is it? It, because it,
0: you it, talk about it so much. It it must be. Like so, you know, um I think there's seven, maybe six Resident Evil films from the first Resident Evil kind of film franchise that uh Paul W.S. Anderson did, you know the guy who did the Mortal Kombat film. Yeah. And they did Event Horizon and they did Resident Evil with Mila Jokovic. I think there were six or seven of them that kind of ran from like 2002 to like 2017, 2016, and they're like first two kind of follow the story of the first couple of Resident Evil games, and then they just become completely mindless action films
3: where they just use some of the characters from Resident Evil games. So would you say it's like the kind of need for speed series now or like would you also say is there anything that's really hit has there been like a Resident Evil film that's totally cracked it or TV series?
0: Mm, the 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 first film that has its fans and maybe the second film has its fans for sure and it kind of follows the story a little bit but you know once again there's just lots of inaccuracies and lots of characters renamed and changed and the plot points and stuff like that um but yeah there's been like i want to and then yeah so i think maybe 6 or 7 in the Yokovic series and then there was another one called welcome to raccoon city which came out the back end of last year which was okay but let's say i took you to the cinema to see it rather you would have had absolutely no idea what was going on because it just assumed you know what everything is <laughs> including particular monsters that popped up in the film and characters you just be like what the hell is this like what's going on and it just like took a lot of a lot of liberties and made the made one of the main characters an absolute idiot and he's not an idiot in the games and stuff and then there's quite a few cgi films which are meant to be classed as like canon as actually part of the resident evil games if that makes sense um i want to say probably about five or six of the cgi films now and now, obviously, we've got the TV series. So I wouldn't be surprised if it is the most adapted video game series into kind of like cinematic universe, if that makes sense. Because that's quite a lot I've just listed off there. But none of them are masterpieces. They're they're all far from masterpieces, unfortunately. You know,
2: I haven't watched any of this new Netflix series. And yeah, I probably won't now that it's being cancelled after one series. But I've seen a lot of complaints saying very similar things to what you just said then. On Twitter and looking at, you know, the, the comments on this Nintendo Life article, people are saying it kind of feels like they wanted to tell a story and they want to make, like, a, a zombie kind of show, and then they wanted a brand name to put on, on it for recognition even yeah. though it wasn't really related to it. Yeah. Like, they made a zombie show. Generic show and slapped the Resident Evil title on just to get viewers.
0: Yeah, that that's how it felt, and, like, they should just make an actual, fateful adaptation of the first game, or the, and, and, and maybe the second game you know, as the second season or something like that, but they've just never done it. They've just always played with the plot and just make it, you know, really silly. And the games are silly, you know, you know, in terms of cheesiness and, you know, the campiness of it and stuff like that. I reckon you could make that serious if you really wanted to, because there was a cheesiness and, and kind of campiness to this as well, but it just didn't land.
2: I don't think anyone's going to be uh, no. buying too much. <laughs> this series has been cancelled, so uh, still obviously scope for a good Resident Evil TV series. But I've got a feeling Netflix won't be making it any time soon. Um, it is available if you want to catch up on that first series, though. Although Joe's probably give us all the highlights a bit. Yeah, pretty
0: much. That. Yeah, sorry, apologies for that. I hope nobody's <laughs> screaming at me now.
2: Um, this is really cool, though. This is um, Pac-Man World repack. Now, do you remember Pac-Man World on the? Original PlayStation, I've got a feeling it was on the, the Game Boy Advance as well, came yeah. out back in, like, 99, 2000? Yeah, I remember it. I remember, Uh, I want to say maybe, maybe
0: a little bit earlier, because it, it's got that early, like, when everybody was trying to figure out 3D, hasn't it, mm. kind of feel to it, you know, around kind of Mario 64 kind of time. But I feel like you're right. I feel like it came out a little bit later. But some games were still trying to figure it
3: out, weren't they? Some, you know, publishers and stuff like that. But I remember it being quite fun. He always freaks me out. Um, he always freaks me out, that uh, 3D Pac-Man. <laughs> I don't know why there's something that looks wrong. <laughs> but Maybe it's his Pac-Man eyes. His, his eyes are his, Pac-Man. His, or his boots
2: and gloves. <laughs> his yeah. dead dark eyes. Yeah. Well, this was um, Yeah, this was really, you know, Pac-Man made into, uh, you could say it was a bit of a puzzle game, bit of a maze game, mm. kind of elements of stuff like, you know, Mario 64, I guess, bit of Free roaming in there too, a uh, bit of platforming. I, I enjoyed this game. <laughs> haven't played it for a while but now it turns out they've actually done a remake of it that you can play on modern consoles including steam it's on there it's on the switch as well and this is called pac-man world repack and they've actually made some quite nice improvements looking at this i mean there's an article here on nintendo life where they're saying that you know the graphics are souped up and everything but it still kind of retains that late 90s kind of early 3d clunkiness which some people might not like
0: i was going to say i i, I quite like that they haven't taken away that clunkiness mm. and quite like that sometimes it kind of gives you that that original kind of video game difficulty feel it's your fault if you died not so much you know because the controls might feel clunky but they do what they have to do like the game doesn't hold your hand if that makes sense mm. like when they've got that that kind of feel to it it's been it's been reviewed quite well um it's been out for a couple at the, at the point of recording this it's been out for a few days Um, but it's really gone under my radar i didn't i didn't know they were redoing this or anything like you know anything like that because it wasn't a huge game but obviously pac-man is a huge ip um but what i do like is they've done it in the vein of like the crash bandicoot remasters and the spy of the dragon remaster uh where it isn't just an upscale of the original game it is it's a complete rebuild of the game but with the same feel and controls and everything and I think it's it, credit to the producers when they actually
2: make it feel and look like the original game, even though they've actually completely rebuilt it. Yeah, and there is on um, pacmanfandom.com, which is like a Pac-Man Wikipedia page, there's um, a massive list of all of the changes they have made from the original Pac-Man world, and there's quite a lot on here as well, including um, they give Pac-Man the hover-jump ability, oh, okay. which was in um, Pac-Man and the Ghostly Adventures on the 3DS. that lets him kind of hover in the air, you know, to make it easy oh, okay. to jump okay, so they the have gaps. added a few,
0: quite a few things then.
2: Yeah, and it, in a power pellet transforms Pac-Man into Mega Pac-Man, which uh, makes you a know, massive version of him, similar to Pac-Mania, um, in a wedge kind of form. So it looks like they've actually gone through and added quite a lot of new features in here as well. And in the original one, I remember you had to save all of the members of the Pac-Man family mm. to finish the game. Apparently, you don't have to do that the, now. The pac Clan. Yeah, so you, you, you can sacrifice all the other Pac-People now. pac mans not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, graphically, yeah, you can tell they've actually rebuilt a lot of this because it looks, you know, I think the graphics look really nice. Yeah, yeah. it, does, it um, does look good, definitely. And I'm thinking for me, it's going to be, yeah, if, if I'm going to get this, it looks like, again, it's going to be really at home on the Switch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We always say that, don't we, about these remakes and, <laughs> and remasters and stuff. It, it, it's always perfect for the Switch. It's good for It's good for that pick up and play, especially, you know, with these kind of like older, you know, remasters. Well, retro games, you know what I mean? It's nice just to jump into them and there's no crazy story. You know, the story is Pac-Man's family's been kidnapped on his birthday. Go get them back. Save
2: one or two of them if you like. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Go <laughs> save a couple of them while you
0: do or some platforming yeah. puzzles. But yeah, you know, the, the reviews are in and they said, you know, I think they've given it a 7 seven out of 10, 8 out of 10 uh, mm-hmm. most places. And they've kind of said, pick it up if you see it, but don't go banging on the doors of the, you know, your local game shop saying, I need Pac-Man repack. Um, but it's good to see it's done. It's, you know, it's it's ticking the right boxes.
2: Yeah, a game that I think a lot of people have probably forgotten from the, the Pac Man franchise. So um, worth a revisit, and you can play it on your modern platforms. That's available now. Now, this is really cool. If you've got your original GameCube kicking around, this stealth GameCube mod allows you to play your system with any Bluetooth controller. And uh, I love the thumbnail to this video. It's someone playing on a GameCube using a PS5 Bluetooth controller.
0: This looks really cool. And uh, they've described it as a no soldering and no cut mod. um, That's what we like, which I also like as well. So it's called the Blue Retro, and it costs $95 um, at the moment, up for pre-order via Laser Bear Industries, which is a really cool name. Uh, And essentially, it, it, it looks pretty... I want to say it looks pretty simple, but you take the GameCube apart and you essentially just replace the... The front board where the, I don't know if board's the right word for it, but the panel. Yeah, the controller board. The controller board, you replace it with the new one and, and it looks really similar. And you just plug it in. It, it just plugs into what's already there in the GameCube. And essentially, um, it's got internet capability on there. So you can update the interface and the firmware and stuff like that on it. But as you say, it pretty much, it will then pretty much pair with any Bluetooth controller. So PlayStation 3, 4, 5. Xbox One, Series X and S, Switch controllers, um, Wii controllers, any sort of generic HID Bluetooth controllers, any of the 8-bit Do controllers as well, and even uh, Bluetooth keyboards will work on it as well, uh, which I think uh, is a
3: really cool piece of tech. It's interesting because um, so Dan had this device for his Amiga, which is called a Kipper 2K, and in the back you could add a little Wi-Fi module. Now, um, this seems to be like standard devices that are coming out. So at the moment, these little Bluetooth modules are coming out. And yeah. it seems like this is a kind of adaption of that. Um, mm. It's really cool because you said it can be updated. It can do o- over-the-air updates as well, which is yeah. uh, amazing through Wi-Fi. And then you can get the new features of it. But it also uh, supports four controllers at once yeah. on the on the same Bluetooth, which is yeah pretty awesome and yeah. um I, I think that's a
0: must for the gamecube because you know the n64 and the gamecube they were they were those four player consoles they had the four player you play mario Kart, yeah four players and i think if they if they hadn't done that they said oh mod your gamecube so you can play with the bluetooth controllers but it's only two player or one player i think
2: it would have i'm not saying it would have flopped but i think people would have been a
0: little bit disappointed in that
2: it does look nice because it lines up with the ports on the gamecube's front casing. So it looks transparent, although you look at it it looks like it does actually glow a little bit inside like there's some LED lighting in there. Yeah. But there are slots to plug your original GameCube wired controllers in so you can still use them as well.
3: Well, it says yeah. when you plug the original wired controller in, the bluetooth will then move along to the open ports automatically. Mm. Which mm. is pretty awesome. So you know, you plug yeah, player 1 in and that. then bluetooth switches mixture, to player yeah. 2. That's uh, really smart
0: that is. Yeah, because Me yeah, and Dan right. we were in Norway, we were trying to play our Switch, and we were really struggling to get on the plane. On the plane, right? we were really struggling to get your controllers to pa- to pair with my Switch, weren't we? Like for a good twenty minutes, and then to watch this, which I know it's a new technology going into the GameCube, but to simply watch the video, as you were saying that, Ravi, I saw it on the video. He literally plugs a WaveBird controller into Port One, and the Bluetooth automatically moves to Player Two, and then he yeah. plugs a wired controller into Player Two, and it automatically within a split second, automatically changes to play free. And I think that's absolutely amazing. The fact that that's not a built-in technology into, I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, the faff to get those controllers to work on the Switch, and then you just see this in a $95, $100, you know, mod for your GameCube, for me, is just, I think that's amazing.
3: Well, he's also got um, Marco Actions, which is basically like control key combos that can do certain stuff. So one powers off the... Uh gamecube remotely so if you press uh left trigger right trigger and start and uh the down button then it will actually power down the uh, gamecube so there may be more functions that will get added in into that with updates which is pretty awesome so you'll be able to do all these mad key combos to do different stuff with your gamecube uh, using this device pretty awesome to be honest
2: although joe did mention something and i'll be honest when playing my gamecube You'll have to prize my Wavebird controller out of my cold, dead fingers. Oh, really? I still think I still think that is like one of the best wireless controllers I've ever used. Yeah,
0: it is good, and it and it does say in the description of this that like the Wavebird is loved by many, many people. Like a lot of people really do love the Wavebird and and the feel of the GameCube controller. Um, but if you never managed to get a hold of a Wavebird, or you know, you just want something a little bit... More of a modern update, and this this could be the one for well, you. Well, th- there's
3: another killer feature as well, which is a uh, you can actually uh, do button mapping mm. uh, off your phone or on oh, a computer, okay. so you can reconfigure the buttons on the fly, which is just like amazing. It seems like a lot of thought has been put into this device.
0: I could just imagine Dan having this mod and being drunk on a Saturday night playing it, and he's losing at <laughs> a game, and he's like, "Let me just re."
2: We remap my buttons for a Are you suggesting I blame the hardware rather than my <laughs> gaming skills, Joe? Um, yeah, it does look very cool, though. And I think, you know, because Wavebirds, I've been looking on eBay, to go for at least £70, unboxed, it seems. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, and a lot of them haven't even got these. You need a little um, dongle that you plug in, you know, Wi Fi dongle, a wireless Yeah, it's like exactly a radio, radio wave game. dongle, isn't it? You need. Yeah, a lot of them are missing those on eBay. It seems as well. So uh, yeah, if you don't want to pay those extortionate prices, and you want to have some uh, four-player Mario Kart double dash action on your GameCube, could be a really good way of doing it. So uh, pre-orders for those look like they're available now. Yeah, we had a great patrons' hangout at the weekend, didn't we? It was, um, and there's obviously another one coming up very soon as well. This is where we all get together. We completely geek out on the last Sunday of every month. Just a bit of a a geek out session. Few mates all together. Talking about what games we've been playing recently, showing off hardware—that always happens as well. And just really, I mean, it's a, the best Sunday of the month for me when our patrons hang out as so.
0: Oh god, yeah, absolutely. We we we've kind of got into a routine now. Like you say, we do it on the last Sunday of the month, and we also we also do our after hours podcast. So we kind of record our after hours podcast, and then we go straight into the into the into the hangout. And it's just so cool. You guys were really geeking out about some Mac stuff, which was just well over my head. Uh, this, that's, that's, that's
2: always geek. a
3: section where, where james yeah just kind of staring into space as we get really yeah, but, yeah. but but
2: but, he's, but not, he's on ebay spending money he's on ebay spending
0: money but prior to that you guys were having a really cool conversation you were all showing off your joysticks and everybody was discussing hey, there yeah everybody was what um discussing their amiga joysticks and you know it's that kind of like user group i can't remember who it was but uh, i think it might have been james he was on there and he, he, he had a particular joystick that only had two settings on it. Somebody else had the same joystick, but it had three settings. And then, Dan, you were like, oh, that's because you've got this model and you've got that model. And, you know, it's that like user groupness of it, you know, which I really,
2: really love. Yeah, and you mentioned the After Hours podcast, which um if you join us on Patreon this weekend, a very good time for uh gold members and above, you'll actually get the latest episode of the After Hours podcast, which has just dropped. And at this time... We played games suggested by our patrons. So this was so much fun. I think you came up with this idea, Joe, that, you know, get us out of our comfort zone a little bit. Maybe get on platforms that we don't normally play games on. Maybe some, like, famous titles that we just have overlooked and haven't played. So we played, Um, I think it was nine games in total, didn't we?
0: Yeah, we all did three each. And it, it's really cool just to kind of, like, play some of the games, like you say, that's, that could be hidden gems to us. You know, and uh, I don't want to spoil it, but the games that I got told to play, one of them I initially hated, but after 20 minutes in, I found myself absolutely gripped to it. And now I keep thinking about going back and carrying on with it. So it was a real cool learning curve for me to sit down and actually play like some DOS games and some Amiga games and stuff like that. We got you on Dizzy. You did get me on Dizzy. We don't, I don't want to... Everyone said, Joe's got to play Dizzy. <laughs> you yeah. never played a Dizzy game You did before. get me on Dizzy. You did get me on Dizzy. And uh, I really enjoyed it, but I don't want to spoil it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so if you want to hear our thoughts on that and um, our reviews... Of games suggested by our patrons, and that uh, you can even contribute to that thread as well. You're going to keep this going a bit longer. Um, so if you've got any, maybe your favourite game growing up that was a bit of a hidden treasure, you think we should play? We'd love to review it on the After Hours podcast. So you can get access to that now, and of course, join us this month for the September Patrons Hangout. If you join us on Patreon right now, all the details are at theretrohour.com, and of course, for joining us on there, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming Hall of Fame. <laughs> and that is the retro hour hall of fame and we've got a brand new patron to welcome this week a massive thank you to damien smith really appreciate your support mate and if you'd like to join the retro hour patron community all the details are at the RetroHour.com. now someone who probably wouldn't be welcome in the retro hour patron community or at one of our hangouts you know we we'll think we'd have a bit of a go at her janet jackson who it turns out is destroying our old PCs. <laughs> i thought
3: this story was pretty funny. Um, So this is all about Rhythm Nation by... uh, One of my favourite Janet Janet Jackson Jackson songs. This is where my Michael impression is going to come out. Hey, Janet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not doing a Janet impression that I've
3: got a new thing you should do. It's 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 called military. And then, <laughs> apparently he suggested uh, God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> he suggested um, the kind of military vibe. And then she did Rhythm Nation, which was a really cool kind of one. Uh, so so this this tune was on Michael. Um, but um, What actually happens is in Rhythm Nation, there's a certain frequency that interferes with old hard drives that are, are running at a certain speed. And it's, it's really quite interesting. I've, I've heard about this and I've seen videos on YouTube. There was even one in America, uh, Australia, where they were kind of holding up, you know, their laptops to Rhythm Nation and trying to get it to crash. And it's like, it's got to be a very specific model, you know, of hard drive that this is going to happen on. But this isn't the only case of this happening. So uh, previously, <laughs> there was um, an engineer... Uh uh, uh Fishworks and uh his name's uh Brendan Gregg. He decided to do a test which was uh how to kind of upset your hard drives. And uh what he did was he had a stack of hard drives in a data center and he just screamed at them. <laughs> he just he did like a metal growl, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, like <laughs> and uh it basically caused some interference, and this is because. The sectors in a hard drive are really crushed together, uh, really close, and uh, these like vibrations or any kind of changes in the atmosphere can um, affect them in a way and uh, cause like latency on the uh, I/O, which is it's pretty amazing. And uh, the reason we know about this is because it's been confirmed by a, a Microsoft software engineer. So he actually confirmed that uh, you know Rhythm Nation. Was uh, actually
2: affecting hard drives,
3: which <laughs> I think is pretty crazy. It's not; it's not just a rumor. It actually happens.
2: It's kind of because I've watched a really good video on it by Dave Plummer, who does uh, Dave's Garage on YouTube, and he, he's also a retired Microsoft engineer. He did like a long, like, half an hour video explaining it all, and he actually tried it. It couldn't replicate, it, unfortunately. But I think it's because you're right; it's got to be like a fifty a five thousand four hundred rpm hard disk of a certain vintage and they've got more protection than that these days but he made a good comparison he said it's kind of like when you see you know, like an opera singer can hold a wine glass up and they'll like <laughs> hit a certain frequency and it will shatter yeah mm. it'll be like that yeah that those kind of yeah getting those frequencies it's causing to like a little it...
3: bounce or it's causing like yeah uh, a change in the atmosphere that that kind of messes it up
2: but um it
3: does remind me of we, we did a story ages ago about uh you know, bits getting flipped on a hard hard disk through, a, you know, a solar rays. Uh, mm. And uh, somebody managed to kind of do an amazing speed run because a solar ray hit that hard drive. So um, it's, it's amazing how many things can actually affect uh, hard drives, you know, natural causes and stuff like that. I'm pretty mad, to be honest.
2: That guy doing the metal growl. In the, in the data center, I thought was pretty cool. And it's got this vision. of so obviously, Joe, you know, you've, you've been in several metal bands over the years. It's got this vision of you now being banned from like Play Expo. So, you're going to walk around there destroy just and destroy all the old computers. screaming at computers. I won't do so, that. Don't worry. <laughs> don't let him into a so data center. <laughs> yeah, stay well away. So, if you want to see the uh, the videos as well, I'll put those. I'll put Dave's uh, video in the, in the description as well. It's a really good watch. Um, so, yeah, keep Janet Jackson away from your old PCs if you want them to keep functioning. Now, what about this? A classic game publisher, Sunsoft, is back. They remember remember Sunsoft from games like uh, Blaster Master, Batman, and lots more as well. Turns out, it's actually reviving its retro back catalogue.
0: Yeah, in the late '80s and early '90s, Sunsoft did a lot of like Nintendo and Sega um, mm. license games, didn't they? That was kind of like what I remember them for. Vesta's um, Quest. Vesta's Quest. Yeah, they did a lot of those kind of like you know big franchise kind of licensed games and a lot of the good ones, you know, like you say, Batman, stuff like that. And then obviously Master Plaster, which is an absolutely amazing game. Um but they've not been around for a while, but they are still around. Like their their parent company is still going as like a technology company. But Sunsoft haven't been, you know, game pub- they haven't been game publishers for a while. Uh but last Thursday, which was the twenty fifth, they did actually announce 25th of August um, that they were returning to game publishing, and essentially the reason the reason behind it, which comes from their Japanese company, so I'm gonna butcher a lot of names here and I'm really sorry about this uh yuchi uh, Ouchi, I think his name is um is the general manager of sunsoft, and essentially he's announced that they're coming back simply because they're doing very well at the moment. um mm. the company's doing well, and they kind of wanna tip their toes, dip their toes back into the uh you know into the gaming world and publishing. Um, so they've they've hinted that they're going to be bringing back a lot of those kind of licensed games, and that we may see them updated or re-released for modern
3: consoles, which should be really really cool. Well, I think uh, the last releases they did were uh, WiiWare ones. And oh, were they stu- stuff for the like virtual console? So they were kind there of like re- re-releases and stuff. Yeah that, yeah, yeah, that was a while ago. You know, that was yeah like ten yeah. years ago, really 10, 15 well, well, years 15, ago.
0: Fifteen, yeah, yeah. So you know, they've hinted that they're going to be bringing a lot of these nes and you know sega genesis mega drive classics back um including hinting towards hero the acrobat um who was you know one of the i'm i'm, I'm gonna say it wrong now i i can't say it but he was he was a bat a bat person <laughs> you know in the heyday of sonic um you know they've hinted towards bringing him back um, which is really cool but they have announced um a couple of games which did only come out in japan and never made their way to the west you know, back in the day, and they have announced that these games are being remastered and re released for modern consoles, so Xbox, Switch, PlayStation. So, the big one they're coming out is um, Icky Unite, which is a sequel to Icky, which was a game that came out in the 80s. I have never heard of it. Uh, no, was, it, was that Japanese only? It was a Japanese what? only game. Um, and they're also bringing back a Gimmick and Euphoria, um, which are all Japanese only games. So, unfortunately, I'm I'm not familiar with any of these games, but they're bringing out remasters and sequels to these games, and they're hoping that these will do well. And then, essentially, they will then kind of look at their back catalogue, which I think would be really cool if we saw remasters of Blaster Master and, you know, like say, Batman.
3: Well, there's um, a, another one as well that you, you were playing on the After Hours, which was uh, Phantom 2040 as well. Oh, is that by Sunsoft as well? Yeah, it looks like oh, it. Oh, wow,
0: there we go. So I
2: remember Sunsoft more for the Looney Tunes games. Yeah. Yeah, Bugs Bunny, Rabbit Rampage, Daffy Duck they did as well. I remember my friend, Martin, at school loving Tasmania Mm. on the Super Nintendo, which was a Sunset game as well. I've been looking at it. Apparently these games weren't reviewed all that well. You see, Um, all these
0: games, these are all games I loved. (laughs) Yeah. So
2: What's the thing? It's like, I'm looking here, there's even a a comment on one of these articles going, Sunsoft, kings of the 8-bit era, not so much the 16-bit era. But then, yeah, I mean, I remember a lot of kids playing the kind of Looney Tunes games, that they yeah. Put out. No, we, whether it was just because we watched the cartoons and stuff, and you buy anything, we're like, you know, Daffy Duck. Slapped yeah, on Daffy the Daffy course, Daffy slapped, Daffy. slapped on it. You buy it. Yeah, there's
3: a lot of kind of re-releases as well and stuff like uh, you know, Spy Hunter and like uh Fantasy Zone and stuff like mm.
2: that. And apparently, they also put out Lemmings on the Super Nintendo. Oh wow! They did that version oh, for Synthesis. There, you, oh, there go. you go. So another.
0: maybe maybe they'll be bringing Lemmings back, the SNES version. <laughs> uh, who knows? But no, it's it's cool to see that they're like, well, we're doing well. We haven't released any games, as Ravi says, since like the Virtual Console on the Wii. So let's have another bash it. And and these games that they are releasing apparently were really big cult hits in Japan. They just hmm. never made it over here, but they are going to be now. Um Obviously, they're going to be on the game, you know, on the Microsoft Store and stuff like that, and is it PSN? and stuff so uh, yeah one want, want to keep an eye out for us, see if we can get some re-releases of the Sunsoft NES games
2: It's good just to see like a dormant brand mm. from our childhood being brought back as well that's always gonna be yeah. quite cosy to see I think isn't it so welcome back Sunsoft Right then next we're going to be chatting to the father of desktop video if you've ever heard of a video toaster and you think what on earth is that? How did it well how did it change the world? Well, we've got a legend who's gonna be talking to us next on the Retro Hour Podcast. New tech founder Tim Jennison is this week's special guest, and he's next. You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and it is time for this week's very special guest. Now, I've got to say, as a kid, when I used to read, you know, about stuff like the video toaster in magazines, I used to look at that and drool over it. I mean, we talk about the Amiga on this podcast generally from a gaming perspective, but the fact that it was used with this incredible device for visuals in programs like uh, SeaQuest and Babylon 5, stuff like that, just incredible. It blew my mind as a kid. So today, we're actually joined by... Someone who's been described as the father of desktop video, and that is Tim Jennison. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, thanks. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some of your memories with us today. Now, before we get into the video toaster and new tech, I mean, it's always nice to kind of get a bit of background on our guests. What was kind of your first experience of seeing computer graphics and combined with film?
1: Uh, well, I was a kind of a film nerd um... As a youngster, I I'd made eight uh, millimeter home movies. I had a dark room. Uh, you know, I, I would take magazines like Cinefix and I would pour over them with a magnifying glass, trying to figure out what was going on. But uh, then, as you know, mini computers, microcomputers arrived in the late seventies. I was I was there. You know, in the magazines, you'd see this thing called ray tracing, demonstrations of uh, the uh, software that made highly realistic computer generated imagery and I thought that was the most exciting thing in the world. Uh, but I was also a video guy uh, early on. I had, back in the early days, the re- video recorders were reel to reel and they did black mm. and white. So I'm talking about the Sony CV series. And they had a so called porta pack where you could uh, put it over your shoulder and go out and shoot black and white stuff. So I was doing that sort of thing. But then, you know, it, the thought just naturally occurred to me. These microcomputers need to be merged with these video cameras, and you know you could see computer graphics on television, typically like on the intro of a show. They would they would bl- blow their budget on uh, on this uh, uh, CGI, you know, three dimensional shape rotating or something like that. But it was extremely expensive. But um, wh- when the Amiga came out, I go, this is, you know, this is perfect for. For that uh, merger of uh, video and com- and computer.
3: Well, we were wondering uh, when when did you first see an Amiga, and uh, what, what what did you think of it when you when you very first see it? Did you see the prototype at all?
1: No, um, I first saw it in Byte magazine. There was a cover story on the Amiga, and I started reading it. And four thousand ninety six colors, and Genlock adapter. So that was, that, was, that was the magic word. That meant that this computer could sync up to a standard video signal. And uh, that's, uh, that's what made the whole video toaster possible.
2: What about NewTech, the company then? When did you found that and, and why did you form the company?
1: Let's see what year was it was. It was around 1986. I had uh, been involved in the Tandy Color Computer. Now, the Tandy Color Computer was also standard video signal, RS-170A, so NTSC video, and I had made a video digitizer for that computer, which was called the DS69, which I sold to a company called uh, Microworks, and it was a real-time video digitizer, which was pretty remarkable for for that computer. The computer, you know, ran at uh, less than one megahertz clock speed, but it, like I said, it did put out uh, standard video a standard video signal, I wrote a paint program for that computer called Coco Max. They call that computer the Coco, short for color computer. And the Coco Max program was sort of a clone of Mac paint, which had just basically <laughs> the Mac came out. And within six months, I, uh, I sort of cloned their paint program. So that, you know, I already had some experience with uh, video applications. I made a character generator and a couple of other things uh, for the color computer. And uh, when the Amiga came out, I went to my partners at Colorware in New York. And I said, look, we got we to jump on this Amiga thing. This is a perfect computer for doing video. And my partners, Jack and John, uh, they said, well, I'm not sure that's a big market uh, video production. And I said, well, gosh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and uh, so uh, what are we going to do about this? And they said, well, you know, maybe it's time we, we part ways. And I said, okay. And they, it, it was highly amicable. They said, look, we'll buy, we'll buy your shares of the company from you, and you can go off and start your own thing. So I did. I, you know, called it New Tech, and the first product that I had in mind was DigiView, which is a, a slow scan digitizer, unlike the real-time one I had on the color computer. But it was uh, very low cost, and I figured out how to do color from a black-and-white camera. So color cameras were not that common, believe it or not. Uh, Video cameras, most of them are black-and-white, you know, like a, a cheap security camera. So I figured out this way to put a red, green, and blue filter on a wheel in front of the camera lens, and by taking three different exposures through the three different color wheels, you could make a color... Color image. I made a demo reel that showed I don't know three or four. Uh, no, I think I think six. It showed six different images. You would just put it in the Amiga and run the program, and it would um, it would do uh, it would cycle through these six images with a with a crossfade or dip to black in between each one. I put the uh, I put this uh, demo on a on a diskette and went to this Commodore function nearby, where they were introducing the Amiga computer, and I handed it to a Commodore guy named Jeff Bruet after the show. He put it in the computer, and he said, oh, uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Uh, can I make a copy of this? I said, uh, yeah, but uh, please don't spread it around, because my phone number is in the readme file. He said, okay, I won't, I won't give it to anybody. <laughs> and then, you know, within days, my phone was ringing off the wall. <laughs> uh, and I, I knew we had a hit and it was, it was, uh, you know, extremely popular. And then for our follow on, um, DigiPaint was our second major product. And, um, I worked with, um, a programmer named Jamie Perdon on that. It was unusual because it used the hold and modify mode on the Amiga, which is extremely difficult to work with. Uh, but gives you the most colors, 4,096 colors on the screen. So, I don't know, a year or two after uh, DigiView, DigiPaint came out, and it was very successful. And, uh, of course, uh, this was all leading up to uh, uh, the video toaster. So, uh, I was uh, in a meeting at New Tech, and I had a long list that I'd cobbled together of possible projects we could do on the Amiga computer. Uh, including some games that were video-heavy. And one I called the video Black Box, which was a special effects unit. And it also it, also on the list were things like a character generator and so on, um, a 3D program. It was uh, early days. We could do anything we wanted on the Amiga computer. And, you know, the Amiga was the computer from the future. It just wasn't possible to do these sorts of things on a Mac or PC. So we got to this black box idea and I started to describe it and the other people in the meeting started to me a lot of questions. So could you, could you make the video like rotate and page peel and stuff like that? And I said, well, in, in theory, yeah, that let's do that. Uh, because you know, they were all kind of video fans, you know, that just that kind of performance was just not possible. You, you had to pay 20 or $30,000 to get a special effects unit that would do that. So we started on that. And then as time went by and time did go by and people started to say, hey, is that video thing vaporware? And what happened was we decided to incorporate several other items from that list right into the video toaster. So we threw in the character generator, we threw in the 3D animation system, we threw in a paint program, and we realized that this really needed to be a collection of, of tools and f- you know finally we finished it and got it out the door in uh, i think it was uh,
2: 1991 and i remember reading in magazines and actually seeing demonstrations on television of the video toaster and e- even the presenters on tv on you know, computer shows over here would often be like, yeah, this is actually running on an Amiga, you know, that, that machine that you play games on at home. And, and, and it was, you know, just, just crazy to me that this machine that I was playing Lemmings on could do that. What was Commodore's reaction to the Video Toaster, and were they behind the project, and did they give you much support?
1: Um, you know, it, uh, they gave us all the support we needed. When I fr- got my first Amiga, you know, the first one in town, I went to the computer store, the Commodore store, and said, I want the first one, you know, they, and they, they obliged it came with uh, documentation, which was strange. It came with all these software developer handbooks. Great. But I got to a point where I couldn't, I didn't have enough information about what was under the hood, the hardware. And so I, uh, you know, Commodore was not forthcoming on that, but I got a hold of some ex Commodore people, and they suggested that I, uh, a couple names that I could try to. Uh, approach inside Commodore. And I did. These were guys on, on in the Los Gatos uh, development team. So those, the, the developers in Los Gatos really gave me the support I needed. It, didn't, it wasn't coming from corporate. But um, once uh, DigiView came out, I think we rubbed some people the wrong way maybe because they had put their eggs in the, in the basket of another video digitizer. And they were supporting that one and promoting that one. It, however, didn't ship for a long time. And the same thing with the video toaster. We started talking about about that, and they had uh, been working with uh, the New York Institute of Technology on video some video chips that would work with the Amiga computer. And I think they just sort of thought that we were not as pedigreed as... Uh, NYIT I guess.
2: You would originally the Amiga 2000 which was a really big machine. Yeah. Um, that was the, the 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 Amiga that most people put the video toaster in, but then Commodore released a smaller high-end machine called the Amiga 3000. I remember reading at the time quite a bit of outrage from a lot of people that the video toaster wouldn't physically fit into this new high-end machine. I also thought that was a bit of a a strange decision from them, you know, not to kind of consult you and work with new tech you know to make sure that it did so yeah we weren't uh,
1: we weren't especially close at that time and um you know the 3000 came out and we go okay well we'll have to make a a version of this that'll fit in the 3000
3: um i I was wondering like do, do you think that the toaster helped amiga's reputation kind of um
1: helped establish it more as just a gaming machine a lot of people told us that i i'm not sure uh i mean The video toaster itself, the name was somewhat whimsical and broadcast network people didn't really take it seriously, possibly because of the the name and because, well, they could afford that expensive stuff, I guess. But, you know, the the market for the Amiga, it's a consumer machine. And for consumers, you expect sales in the millions and the video business is just not millions of units. It's a lot of units, but not millions. So I think, you know, probably rightfully, Commodore was not really concentrating too much on professional video. Uh, they I've needed- got
2: to say, the name as well, Video Toaster, that always you know stood out. It was memorable. But wh- where did the name come from?
1: Well, back in the early days of development, when it was going to be a collection of products, we envisioned several cards going into the, the card cage in the computer, like slices into a toaster. So it became the code name for the whole project, the toaster, we called it. It was going to be a collection of cards. Well, eventually we boiled all the cards down to one and collected all the software uh, into one application. It came time to launch the product, and we were sitting around trying to think of a good name, which is hard to do. At the end of the meeting, it was scratching our heads. What? uh, Nah, none of these are great. Well, why don't we just call it the video toaster? And that's stuck. And it was, you know, it's whimsical, but it was also memorable, as you say. I uh, went to uh, to uh, Commodore headquarters, and one of the marketing guys was ex-Apple Computer. And uh, we sat down for a meeting. And he says, now, you're going to come out with this product called the Video Toaster. You know, that's, I wouldn't do that if I were you. It. It's, it's kind of a silly name. And I said, now, you're from Apple Computer <laughs> <laughs> yes well an <laughs> apple kind of silly well i don't know you know so yep yeah, it was uh it was memorable and i think that helped
3: and um w- when the project uh, product was initially kind of created it it had like keyboard overlays and uh stickers that you put on your machine and it really did kind of uh change the identity of a machine into like a a, vi- a serious piece of video equipment um was that an aim to kind of get the um, professional video industry excited about it?
1: Or? Yeah, uh, there were certain buyers that uh, just didn't like the idea of a uh, essentially a game computer in their control room. Uh, so there was a segment of the market that just wanted to buy a toaster, not the Amiga computer. So we talked to Commodore and said, would you OEM computers to us so that we could you know, put, put our own branding on it? And, uh, and, and and install it and sell it as a unit. And they agreed. And that, that's what happened there. A lot of people still bought the Amiga separately. A lot of dealers did that for their customers. It was uh, not the easiest thing in the world to install. Uh, so a lot of dealers sort of added value by you know, creating a, a working system for their customers. And that included adding things like um, processor accelerators and things like that.
2: You mentioned earlier about those wipes that were in there as well, these, you know, transitions that a lot of TV programs would use between scenes. I mean, how important was it to get industry quality wipes and how much of an industry was actually using wipes back then? Was it quite, quite widespread?
1: Well, you know, you can, it's a matter of taste. You, you can overdo it certainly. But yeah, why, uh, there were, you know, vertical and horizontal wipes were quite, quite common. The, uh, I guess the second most common might be the clock wipe, uh, which uh, sort of uh, spins around like a dial of a clock. And it, uh, it uses, in editing, it, it's used to indicate the passage of time. So those are the popular ones. A, a page peel was quite commonly used. Uh, but uh, the video toaster had a lot of really strange wipes. You know, we, we just sort of threw in the kitchen sink. So we had falling sheep, for example. <laughs> uh <Nice. laughs> she would fall from the sky and reveal another video underneath there were the so-called kiki wipes uh, which were silhouettes of our uh, our spokesperson a kiki stockhammer and she would uh, in silhouettes she would come up and pull down a, a window shade revealing another video for example those were very popular but you know we, we just kind of threw in everything we could well um uh, well, There was a a team that uh, was their job was to come up with more wipes. Well,
3: talking of the uh, kitchen sink, I remember that was actually uh, like an add-on board um, from a digital image. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Yeah. Did you you see a lot of those like time-based correctors and uh, add-ons and extra kind of products coming out and uh,
1: did you kind of enjoy that? Yeah, absolutely. And it was necessary, you know, it's mind boggling, how difficult it was to actually do tape editing back then. And if you took a stock tape machine and ran it into the video toaster, well, it wouldn't like it because it didn't really meet the timing specs of video. It, it would slip and slide in time. And so you had these things called time based correctors that would fix that and make that video tape machine meet the specs. Now you couldn't really see on screen any difference. But um, the, the toaster would accept one signal, but not the other. So time-based correctors were kind of expensive. And, and when I talk about the dealers putting together complete systems for users, that was one of the problems that they would solve. They would uh, set the user up with um, you know, the tape editing part. And there you would have typically two tape machines and an edit controller, which would control the machines. And you would work your way through the program one, uh, one scene at a time, Adding it on to the recorder sequentially, very unlike the nonlinear editing that uh, we do today. What they called assembly editing. Editing, you would uh, start at the beginning and get to the end. So, yeah, those um, companies that made time based correctors suddenly had a huge market, and uh, in the video toaster users. Now, if you're doing live video with cameras, you didn't need those. But a lot of people that had toasters wanted to do tape editing. That uh, created a market for those time-based correctors.
2: Well, Lightwave was a um, a three D rendering package that you know was very popular on the Amiga, and you know obviously we're going to talk about these shows like Babylon Five that use a Video Toaster, but Lightwave was often used to you know design those three D models that we'd all that we'd see on television back then. How important was working with Lightwave to the Toaster's success, and what was kind of the background with with that product then?
1: Oh uh, well. When we sat down to uh, create that list of applications, 3D was right on the list. We did not write one. Uh, We knew of some 3D programmers out there, and we approached several of them um, and ended up hiring Alan Hastings and Stuart Ferguson. And uh, they created uh, the modeler and the renderer, uh, respectively. Uh, The modeler was... um, basically where you would go and uh, create your 3d models and then the renderer was this uh, program that would make it look three uh, realistic photorealistic and then you would assemble the frames one at a time onto a tape machine when we first shipped the toaster it didn't uh, the lightweight 3d didn't really make much of a splash people would run the toaster and they would see that little 3d button they would click on it and suddenly they're in this complex world of top front and side views and uh tools to add primitive shapes etc in it to a lot of people it just kind of looked intimidating looked like homework and they'd rather go back and play with the uh, the uh, sexy stuff uh but uh, as time went on more and more toaster users would click on that thing and say well it's in my toaster i guess i should try to uh take advantage of it somehow and that I think was a kind of a Trojan horse to get a lot of video people into uh, CGI. Then we started getting calls from people in Hollywood, movie people and uh, television people. And one of the earliest ones was Ron Thornton, was British. He'd worked on the um, Doctor Who show, doing practical effects. In other words, you know, building things out of uh, uh, parts. You know, as before computer graphics.
3: It was uh, notorious for that Doctor Who. Um, yeah, it, you know, you'd see other bits of
1: BBC sat going into um, Doctor Who episodes. Right. Uh, that alien looks kind of like a vacuum cleaner for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, anyway, so Ron had been uh, pitching this show called Babylon 5, and he, the concept was that he would use Lightwave. And he sent us a diskette in the, in the mail. We put it in the Amiga popped it up on the screen, and here is the Babylon 5 ship, and it's gorgeous. Uh, Ron said, our producer would like to meet with you guys to discuss the project. So Doug Netter was the big money man, and he just wanted to know that we would support the team, you know, uh, throughout the uh, any any problems, and we promised to do that. And almost immediately, Ron was running into trouble uh, there was uh, motion aliasing so as, with this babylon ship there were tiny pinpoints of light that were the portholes of the ship and that's kind of the worst case scenario for aliasing because as, sh- as soon as the ship started to move these lights would fluctuate and um we you know you have to do what's called anti-aliasing to get rid of that and our anti-aliasing was not good enough at that point So we sent the programmers into the back room to fix the aliasing. Uh, Another early customer was Todd Rundgren, the rock musician who had been a video guy for a long, long time. He had a video studio in in Woodstock, New York. Well, we were at a Mac show in uh, San Francisco uh, showing the video toaster. And I saw this tall, long-haired person across the room. And I go, that's Todd Rundgren. He's got this unmistakable forehead. Uh, and that's Todd Rundgren's forehead walking across the room. And he, he gets closer and closer and closer and closer. And he walks right up to me. And he says, what's this? says, the video toaster. And I, I knew Todd was video savvy. So I immediately went into video jargon speak and told him that um, it was uh, a character generator, a still store, a 3D animation system, a video switcher, special effects generator, et cetera, and went down the list. And I said, each one of these stations around our booth, uh, you can you can get a demonstration of each each part of the toaster. He said, great, thanks. And he disappeared. The next morning, we came in to open up the booth, and Todd is there before the show opened. He's been there all night, I guess because you don't kick Todd Rundgren out. And <laughs> he'd been there all night, and had learned the whole thing. And he said, I'm going to need like a half a dozen of these. I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> and uh, then Todd started sending us, e- well, we didn't have email. He would send us faxes. This is early days. Fax machines. Look it up. And he would say, uh, you know, th- this, this doesn't work the way it should. Um, I'm having trouble with this. Uh, the program crashes when I do this. And he was just like the beta tester from hell. In a good way, you know, because uh, the programmers all wanted to make Todd happy. So the, you know, all these things sort of drove uh, drove the development of a, a LightWave 3D and made it ready for prime time.
3: And that's uh, really important, that like kind of having that broadcast quality as well and being able to go out onto television. Um, that must have impressed quite a lot of people, knowing that you could do it on a lot cheaper kit in, in, in broadcast standard.
1: Yep, and uh, it actually saved the company, LightWave, because when Commodore fell on hard times and stopped making the Amiga, fortunately about that time, Microsoft had developed uh, Win32, which allowed you to run 32-bit C code on the the PC, which wasn't possible up to that point. So we could port LightWave 3D at that point uh, to other computers. Uh, you know, the most important being the IBM PC. And at that time also, uh, there started to be good video display cards for the PC. We kept the Amiga business going for quite a long time. There were a lot of machines out there and people kept buying them. But uh, eventually, you know, the writing was on the wall. We had to, we had to develop uh, on, a, on a different computer.
3: Well, kind of during that period, you uh, mentioned Kiki camera as well. And I remember her as the face of the video toaster. And uh, I was wondering how she got involved with the company and um, the kind of marketing, because she was throughout there, throughout into the kind of late days after the Toaster 4000. I think she even went into the TriCaster stuff as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, She left uh, for some period of years and then came back and promoted the TriCaster. But uh, yeah, Kiki uh, had gone to school for a corporate communications degree, I think. Uh, but she was working as a dental technician at the time. And one of the new techers just happened to be at the dentist and struck up a conversation with her and she was very interested in, in the new tech story. And so she came in for an interview And the rest is history. Uh, She's just a natural in front of a camera and in front of a crowd. Uh, Her first job, two weeks after she was hired, we were doing the Commodore show in Cologne, Germany. Kiki had to get up in front of the crowd and demonstrate the video toaster. Fortunately, Kiki speaks German fluently. (laughs) Who knew? And, uh, and, 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 you know, she had a meeting out of the palm of her hand.
3: Well, I was wondering what the um, kind of changes were when you went onto the Toaster 4000. And um, I I remember seeing the the promotion for the Toaster 4000. It seemed like you had everybody in the uh, video with uh, Penn & Teller, Tony Hawk, uh, Will Wheaton in that as well.
1: Right. Well, Will Wheaton actually worked at New Tech. What kind of stuff was he doing there? I'm not sure. (laughs) It was marketing things. You know, I didn't work with him directly. Um, he was in the marketing marketing department. It was pretty weird to walk down the hall and Wesley Crusher is coming from the other end of the hall. Don't call him Wesley, though. He didn't like that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he was invited to one of our Christmas parties and he liked it so much he stuck around. Yeah, it, uh, the 4,000 uh, demo tape we had, we sort of th- threw a lot of uh, promotion behind it. And, uh, yep, yeah, Penn, uh, Penn and Teller were in it. I, I've known Penn and Teller for a long, long time. And um, when we were putting that tape together, I, I asked if Penn would uh, appear on tape. They also did, Penn and Teller did a very early promotional tape for the Video Toaster called Penn and Teller's Guide to Video Toaster Etiquette. And this was quite a while before the toaster shipped. And I think if you go on YouTube, you can probably find Penn and Guide to Video Toaster Etiquette.
2: It, it all seemed like they, they were very tech savvy as well. Cause I remember them doing some stuff with like the, the Sega CD when that first launched too. I mean, were they big fans of the technology and maybe their kind of background in exploration and magic maybe helped there somehow?
1: Yeah, they were uh, You know, some of the most wired uh, show business people uh, you can imagine. They, they were early adopters of computers. They, their office was computerized. They traveled a lot and then they stayed online. There was no online internet at that time. It was done through bulletin board systems. But uh, they had their own system called The Jungle. And they would invite just a few friends. And uh, we'd have these conversations. And you had to get on and get off very quickly. You know, you wanted to upload, download the messages and upload your new message uh, in a minute or two. Because somebody else was trying to dial into the system. So that's how archaic things were back then. But uh, yeah, they were, they were definitely tech heads.
2: Well, how much did Garth wearing a video toaster T-shirt in Wayne's World help sales?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. But that's uh, another interesting story. One of the, one of the engineers on the uh, video toaster was uh, Brad Carvey. His brother is Dana Carvey, who was one of the uh, stars on Saturday Night Live at that time. And then uh, went on to do Wayne's World and Wayne's World 2 with Mike Myers. Uh, so by virtue of having Brad on the toaster development team, uh, we could occasionally hang out with, uh, with Dana Carvey. Got to visit uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live a few times. And then when they were shooting Wayne's World 2, we were invited to go on the set. And Brad said, hey, could you wear a Video Toaster T-shirt? And his brother Dana said, "Well, I'll, I'll run it up the flagpole, see if anybody agrees." And so there you are. But I got to say, uh, Mike Myers is uh, one of the most shy people I think I've ever met, and he kind of looked at his shoes a lot. But then after after the ice is broken, he he's just the funniest person you can imagine.
3: I, I was wondering if there were any. Um like really mad examples or projects or uses of the video toaster that you you weren't expecting that you saw uh, and people were doing?
1: Yeah. uh, In the manual for the toaster, it said, send us your tapes. We would like to see them. Well, they did. And tapes were arriving um, regularly, daily. I still have all of them, by the way. And some of them are now big names that were people just trying to get started with their toaster. And you saw everything under the sun. There, there was, um, oh, one of the more interesting and well-done ones was a bar mitzvah tape that was a multi-camera shoot and just over-the-top production. There were some job applications that were done on video. There, there were porn, you know, you could, you know, porn uh, drove a lot of the early video uh, tape business and uh, Video Toaster was adopted I guess because it was pretty affordable. So, yeah, I mean, we were amazed constantly at what people were doing. And it was, you know, gratifying. Uh, And Penn, at one point, before we shipped the toaster, he said, um, you're going to see a lot more bad video. And you're going to see a lot more good video. You're going to see a lot more video. He said, "If, uh, if you can buy a pencil, you can be a writer. So writing is a true art form, but he said, you can't be an artist and make video because the tools are unaffordable. This is going to change that.
2: Like I mentioned before, I remember reading about the video toaster when it launched, but the magazines, I read them all and I thought, this thing looks incredible. Um, but then it got to the end and it was like, this is a, an NTSC based yeah. device. And, uh, you know, we're hoping there's going to be a PAL version so we can use it in Europe. What was the story with that?
1: Well, eventually there was a PAL version that was done by a third party who used standard converters that actually converted the PAL to NTSC, ran it through the toaster, and then output it back through another converter to PAL. And if you know anything about standards conversion, you can imagine how that did not work that well. You know, it, uh, it, it puts a pretty heavy uh, fingerprint on the signal when you do that makes things Mm. sort of grainy and jerky. But the toaster used a kind of a dirty trick to do the video effects that really depended on NTSC. And we made a conscious decision that that was going to be okay because we thought 99% of our market was going to be in North America. And it probably was. So... You know, when Kiki did that show in Cologne, she was very careful to say, uh, this is not PAL, you know. So, um, act accordingly. It uh, would have been nice, but um, like I say, we were using a quirk of the NTSC video signal to make the effects work. And it would take me a while to explain it. But um, like I say, it was a dirty trick. It was sort of a uh, what we called a hack in in, in so hackers, there's two kinds of hackers, those that steal computer time from other people. And then there are the, the good hackers who use software and hardware to, to, to get the job done. And they'll do mm-hmm. anything, break the rules to achieve the result. And so in that sense, uh, that's what the toaster was. It started on the back of a napkin in a pizza joint. And um, I was describing this to uh, Brad Carvey. And I said, if we can deal with these pixels as a collection of four pixels, we can move them anywhere on the screen, and the color will be correct. We don't have to decode the signal into RGB. And that's, in a nutshell, uh, how it started. But this would not work in PAL. Well, no, it won't. <laughs> what do you think? And we decided to go ahead.
3: Well, the... Um toaster flyer was amazing i i've actually seen one running in the uk recently and uh just being able to make that change from playing from a video source um to actually playing from hard drive uh that that was really huge um was this a uh, very popular upgrade
1: uh, yeah it of, was you know, at the time um, and it was um you know one of the first uh broadcast quality online editors uh, where you could just random access you could drag the clips around in any order you want hit play you could even hit play and rearrange the clips that were coming up in the next few minutes you could basically create the show edit the show be- as it was airing which as far as I know is probably still a unique feature but yeah we you know we knew what a hassle it was to do tape editing with all the time-based characters and the uh, edit controllers And so we, you know, next on our list was uh, trying to make a nonlinear editor. Avid uh, also had one. As far as I know, at that time, it was not not possible to strictly get a broadcast quality signal out of an Avid editor. Uh, There were technical problems with the signal, but the engineers tended to overlook those because it was so powerful to do nonlinear editing so fast. So... We uh, worked on getting a video signal onto a hard drive, which was quite, quite difficult because the hard drives didn't really pass data very fast. And video comes at you like a fire hose, data-wise. So you have to compress it, reduce the size of the data so that it'll go onto hard disk. And so the the flyer was basically a giant compression board that would... um, compress a signal, and then decompress multiple streams uh, in real time uh, as they would go through the toaster. And it was, it was amazing. It, it's uh, one of the easiest ways to edit to this day, somewhat ahead of its time. In
2: 1994, obviously, Commodore went bankrupt, who made the Amiga. Um, you kind of alluded to before, you know, the fact that you had to move to the PC. Did you kind of see the end of Commodore and the Amiga coming? And how quickly did you have to change the company to survive then? Because, I mean, it seemed like the toaster was so linked to the Amiga at, at that stage.
1: Yep. It was uh, joined at the hip with, with the Amiga. Uh, we actually used the Amiga's video signal to control the toaster. Uh, the toaster was not in the regular card slots. It had no access to the computer's data and address buses. It was only in the video slot. So we were using the Amiga's... <coughs> video signal in a very unusual way and we had to have the Amiga gen locked to our toaster board to do that well no other computer worked that way uh, specifically with that video slot with gen lock and at the time we started the toaster the mac was black and white it was a sealed box you couldn't open it without this, this secret screwdriver the PC could do basically 16 colors in big, chunky blocks. So the Amiga was, was our only choice. We didn't really pay too much attention to Commodore, the company, uh, but we should have because they were showing early signs of cracking. But it came as a shock uh, when, when they went out of business and, and, and the video toaster was... Uh, selling like there's no tomorrow, and then suddenly there's no tomorrow. Uh, it looked like we were dead in the water, and as I said earlier, then we uh, we ported the uh, we ported lightwave software to the PC and to other computers. It ran on five or six platforms, ultimately, and that kept uh, the cash going until we could develop uh, our video product on another platform, and we chose the PC to do that. Essentially the approach changed because with the Amiga toaster, we had to have a lot of custom circuitry to process the video in real time. The computer itself couldn't do it. Uh, You could not digitize the video, put it in the computer and then pull it back out. It wasn't fast enough for that. But when uh, we started on the PC toaster, uh, processor speeds were climbing rapidly. And I remember I was in a meeting with uh, some of the new tech staff, and I said, "Look, uh, you know, very soon we're going to have 33 megahertz Pentium chips." One of the people in the meeting said, oh, "Wait a minute, what? 33 megahertz? That's crazy. That'll that'll take decades." And I, I said, "No, Moore's law. All you have to do is look it up. You know, it's going to go to 33, then 66, and eventually we'll have gigahertz." That's what we were relying on. We were relying on Moore's law. So we. Early on, even though the computers weren't quite fast enough, we decided that what we needed to do was have the computer do all the work. So we had a a card to digitize the video, turn it in numbers, and put it on the computer's bus, put it in the computer's memory with DMA. The computer software then would modify the picture to the extent that it could, and then uh, quickly output that frame. So there's a bit of a delay there uh, compared to the video toaster, uh, but that's fine. And it allowed us to do amazing things, more and more amazing things as Moore's law uh, ground away. And the computers got faster and faster and faster. So that was a a fundamental change. And and the toaster then became essentially a piece of software.
2: And it also kind of changed into... What was really the spiritual successor to the video toaster a product called the tricaster as well didn't it
1: right uh so the video toaster for windows was was a card and you know the same model as we used in the amiga and typically dealers would install it for a customer get it all working work out the kinks and there was a, a board meeting or a, a, an executive meeting one day where i said you know what what if we what if we do like we did with uh with uh, commodore and oem this thing by by computer like for example a small form factor shuttle computer put our card in it have video jacks right on the box uh sell it as a turnkey system and it was somewhat controversial uh, believe it or not uh, because we had all these dealers that had really made their mark by integrating these systems and this would sort of take away some of that business for them and indeed some of the dealers did not like the idea at all but it in the end it's the right idea uh it's uh makes life much simpler for the customer and uh, the first TriCaster just sold like hotcakes and then we came out with more and more TriCasters after that.
3: I thought it was a a, an amazing concept and it's it's also kind of amazing now that you you know you look at mobile phones and kids can sit there and edit four oh, K movies on the kind of fly. And uh, looking back at those early kind of Amiga days, you must kind of feel proud of what you did with uh, such limited technology.
1: Absolutely, and um, you know uh, the, the, con- the technology continues continues to evolve. There are bigger and bigger video toasters, and uh, as you say, you can make video. It's fine on an iphone uh it's great living in the future you <laughs> know so it's amazing what the computers can do compared to uh to those early days well
2: in 2013 um penn and teller actually made a documentary film um about you called uh, tim's vermeer what was the story there
1: oh boy uh this was a, a fork in the road that i never saw coming my daughter bought me for christmas this book um uh, called Secret Knowledge by uh, the painter uh, David Hockney, where he basically said artists uh, in the late Renaissance were using optical devices to paint. And it explains some of the characteristics of these paintings that are pretty mysterious otherwise. The book was very controversial. As I say, my daughter bought it for me for Christmas. I read the book, and in, in the bibliography of the book, he talks about another book called Vermeer's Camera, Vermeer was a Dutch painter from the, from the mid 17th century. And his pictures look very much like photographs. He only painted 35 or 40 pictures that we have, but they're all perfect. They're little jewels of realism. And I started to think about this and look at it. And the basic idea behind uh, David Hockney and Philip Stedman's book, Vermeer's camera, is that the, Painters were using a camera obscura, which is nothing but a dark box with a lens in the side. You know, pre-photography camera essentially. And if you've ever seen a camera obscura, you, it's kind of a dim, kind of fuzzy image that's projected on the screen of the unit. But it's it's moving. You know, it's uh, whatever whatever's out there in front of the lens gets projected on this little screen. Mm. And people assumed that you could just paint. On that projection. Well, you can't. It doesn't work, strangely enough. And I knew this. As soon as you start to paint on the screen, it obscures the projection. And you can't compare your painting to the screen, one obliterates the other. And I had been in Amsterdam at the uh, IBC show, video show, and I'd gone to the Rijksmuseum and looked at these uh, paintings. And in the bathtub, this idea just suddenly emerged from nowhere that if you could compare the painting to the camera projection, you could copy the colors perfectly. But you couldn't do it with the camera obscure alone. So mentally, I arranged this flat mirror, small flat mirror out in space such that you could see the reflection of your subject in the mirror and then off to the side of the mirror, you'd see your painting looking straight. Hard to describe. But the mirror's sort of at a 45 degree angle out in front of your nose. And you move your head back and forth and you can see subject painting, subject painting, and you work until you've eliminated any difference between the two. And you can uh, you can match the paint colors trivially easy. And I thought that's interesting. Uh, I might be onto something here. So I started researching. I went on the internet looking for this idea. Surely, somebody has come up with this before. Apparently not. About this time, I got an email from Penn Jillette in Las Vegas, and he said, hey, yep, I haven't seen you in a long time. I've been hanging out with my kids and not my friends, and I, I could use a sort of an adult conversation. Uh, could you come out and visit? I said, sure, I'll, I'll come out next week. So, we sat down, for dinner. And he said, talk to me about something that's not show business and it's not politics. Uh, he said, I've had it up to here with show business today. Uh, what else can we talk about? And I said, well, you know about uh, Vermeer? Um, yeah. He said, I, w- I went to that show in New York of all the Vermeers amazing, you know, photo-real, photoreal paintings. And he knew a fair amount about it. And I said, well, I think I figured out the optical technique that he used to make the pictures. He said, what are you talking about? And I explained the idea to him and he immediately got it because magicians use similar techniques hmm. uh, involving mirrors. You know, it's all done with mirrors. And Penn said, I get what you're talking about. What, what are you going to do with this? I said, well, i you know, write a paper about it or, or maybe, maybe make a YouTube video. And he said, that is a really stupid idea. <laughs> this should be a film. You, you should stop right now. Don't do anything else. And let me see if I can get somebody interested in this film. And that's, that's how it started.
2: Like anything Penn and Teller involved with, you know, a, a very fun documentary to watch as well. And I know it takes you to like Holland and uh, the north coast of Yorkshire and Buckingham Palace even as well. So uh, that is available if you want to uh, check it out on streaming services and on Blu-ray as well. So I'll put a link to that in
1: our show notes. Yeah, amazingly um, a successful film. You know, I'm way too close to the forest to see the trees. I, I asked Ben, who would watch this? And he said, people will watch it. And it was actually uh, nominated for a BAFTA award. And uh, got to go to the big BAFTA ceremony there in London. Well, Tim, what do what you up to these days? Tim's Vermeer never stopped. Well, it actually stopped for a year or two. I didn't want to touch a paintbrush. I was sick of the whole thing, literally uh, uh, detested painting. And uh, my daughters were home, I have three daughters. They were home for Christmas. And Claire, the youngest, had been the model in Tim's Vermeer, and I said, Claire, I want to try a very simple experiment with an extremely simple device, just a flat mirror, and I want to try to paint your face. We started working, and Claire was posing as Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring, and I was sitting right next to her with a mirror, just a single mirror, and copying her face on the canvas, and it started to work extremely well. After the first day, I had an incredible likeness of her face. You know, she had her head in a vice. She had to tighten this wood vice around her head so it would not move. Very uncomfortable. She could tolerate it for 20 minutes or so. Anyway, she uh, agreed, uh, and we finished the painting. I I told Penn that I was doing this, and he said, well, by all means, run cameras. You know, we want to see if something interesting happens. Well... We ran cameras for years and years and years after that. That was in, started in 2015. I got invited to, uh, to do an exhibit at an art museum in Australia called the Museum of Old and New Art in Hobart, Tasmania. And that exhibit ran for several years, and we filmed a lot of it. So th- things have been going in the can, as they say, from the camera for years now. The Tim's Vermeer team has been working on it and it's now starting to get close. It's down to a kind of a four or five hour rough edit at this point. And then at the same time, I'm writing what I call the magnum opus, the big book of optics and painting. And I've been working on that, you know, for 15 years now. It's also making good progress that keeps me busy. I'm retired from NewTek. VizRT bought NewTek three years ago. So, like I say, the road I never expected. It's, well, it's taken over my life.
2: Well, it's amazing to hear that, you know, the passion burns strong, Tim. It's, um, it's been an absolute honor talking to you. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your memories with us this week.
1: My pleasure, and, and thanks for your interest.